Extraordinary Districts, a podcast series from the Education Trust that investigates what ordinary school districts do to get extraordinary results. Hi, my name is Karen Chenoweth. The Education Trust is a national education advocacy organization based in Washington, D.C., Back in 2004, it asked me to help find and learn from schools where students of color and students from low-income families achieve at high levels. Since then, as EdTrust's writer-in-residence, I've found that there are lots of such schools. I call them unexpected schools, and I've written and co-written four books about them. By the term unexpected schools, I mean schools with large populations of students of color and students from low-income families whose achievement is at least at the level of middle-class white schools and sometimes at the top of their states. These schools dispel the myth that there is little educators can do to help children overcome the obstacles of poverty and discrimination. They demonstrate the power that public schools have in keeping alive the American dream of opportunity for all. But over the years, I've realized that no matter how good schools are, they won't stay good if the leaders in their school districts don't understand how to support and sustain the work. So in this podcast series, we're going to look at the role districts have. If you're a principal, a superintendent, a mayor, a member of a school board, or just someone who thinks that schools need to do better, this podcast is for you. In the course of the next few weeks, we'll take a journey through a few unexpected school districts and hear some dramatic stories about how ordinary educators have achieved extraordinary results. But in this first episode, we need to take care of a few preliminaries. Mainly, I want to explain how we selected the districts that we'll be visiting. That is to say, what evidence do I have for calling them extraordinary? For those of you who aren't familiar with my work or the work of the Ed Trust, I should say that we always start with the data. Wait, wait, don't go away. I promise not to go crazy with numbers and statistics. But we are basing this podcast series on a huge new data analysis that became available recently, and I want to explain what it is and why it's important. Ultimately, I'm hoping you come away from these podcasts with the understanding that it's possible to educate all children no matter what their background. And maybe you'll have some specific ideas about how to move forward. But I know that if you've been hanging around the field of education for a while, you know that there is a strong correlation between students' backgrounds and their academic achievement. That is to say, in general, as student poverty increases, academic achievement tends to decrease. This correlation is so well established at this point that some might find it surprising that we actually didn't know it until 1966. Until then, it was pretty much assumed that schools were engines of opportunity, that if children went to schools with sufficient resources like books and teachers, they would get smarter. People who cared about equal opportunity for all kids worked hard to make sure children of color and children from low-income families had the same resources as middle-class white children, the same kinds of school buildings, the same number of teachers, the same books. But a sociologist named James Coleman threw a monkey wrench into that work when, in 1966, he issued his report, Equality of Educational Opportunity. I think the 
assumption of a lot of people at the time was that that uh, the schools that black children went to and low-income children went to uh, were inferior in many ways to the schools that white or middle-class kids went to in, um, in terms of resources and facilities and things like that. That's Sean Reardon, professor of poverty and inequality in education at Stanford University. In many ways, his entire field of study was inaugurated by that original work done by James Coleman, known as the Coleman Report. Coleman was commissioned by the by Congress in in the mid-1960s to do a, this huge study of equality of educational opportunity in the United States. Uh, so he went to um, several thousand schools around the country and they surveyed students, gave them standardized tests. So, uh, something like 600,000 kids were tested. Um, so it was the largest social science study maybe that had ever been done to that point. Just to give a little context, this study was done as part of the beginning of President Lyndon Johnson's War on Poverty around the time of the passage of the first Elementary and Secondary Education Act, or ESEA. Coleman's findings turned out to be startling to many. So he found that um, kids' family background is a very strong predictor of academic performance. That is to say, it had been largely assumed that low-income students and students of color achieved at lower levels because their schools were underfunded. But Coleman demonstrated that even if you control for school resources, if a school students mainly came from low-income families, the schools tended to have lower achievement. This was a huge surprise. Remember, slaveholding states went to great lengths to keep African Americans from going to school because they knew that schools and education were the way to advance economically and politically. Later, Jim Crow states explicitly kept their schools separate and unequal for the same reason. Coleman was the first to raise the possibility that schools might not have the effect that people had thought. Maybe, his report implied, whatever smarts kids have, arrive at the schoolhouse door with them, and there isn't much schools can do to get them smarter, no matter how much money is spent. Maybe demography was, in fact, destiny. It was surprising to people. Measurable school resources weren't a, a stronger component of how much children learned. And we've learned a lot since then, and, and, and there are reasons to think that schools matter more than Coleman thought they mattered, but, uh, but it was a important moment in education research in the United States because it was the first time we had large-scale data that really helped us try to think about how much do schools matter, how do they matter, how much does family background matter, and in, in what ways does it matter. Since Coleman's report, countless studies have replicated his original finding that as student poverty increases, academic achievement tends to decrease. Similar kinds of analyses focusing on ethnicity rather than family income show the same kinds of patterns. That is to say, as the percentage of African-American and Hispanic students in a school increases, overall academic achievement tends to go down. This is the research that dominated the field of education for decades and still informs much of the public conversation about schools. But there is another line of research out there. This line of research asked whether there were distinctions among schools. Even if most schools follow the pattern Coleman identified, were some schools more effective than others in educating students of color and students from low-income homes? If so, what were these more effective schools like? 
Back in 1979, a world-famous British child psychiatrist, Sir Michael Rudder, conducted a large-scale study of students from low-income families who were attending London high schools. His major finding was that different schools had dramatically different effects that depended not on the backgrounds of the students, but on how the schools were organized and led. Another researcher who tackled the problem was Harvard University's Ron Edmonds, considered the father of effective schools research in the United States. Edmonds found that schools that successfully educated students of color and students from low-income families had strong leaders and high expectations, among other things. My own observations of unexpected schools have been very much in line with what Rudder and Edmonds found. What I call unexpected schools are led by principals who believe deeply in the capacity of all their students and then relentlessly organize instruction around that belief. To learn more about what I've found through the years, I hope you'll read my latest book, Schools That Succeed, published by Harvard Education Press. But there's still a big question here. Is the success of unexpected schools completely reliant on individual talented school leaders? Or could there be systematic ways to help create and support such schools? To answer that question, we need to look to the larger organizations in which schools are situated, school districts. The difficulty is that there are almost 14,000 school districts in the United States, and they don't have uniform anything. Size, demographics, governance structures, budgets, assessments, cost of living. As a result, it's very difficult to look at school districts across the country in any kind of consistent way. But that's where Sean Reardon and his team at Stanford University come in. They've spent upwards of four years analyzing data for about 12,000 school districts in the country so that we can compare all but the tiniest districts against each other. To assess the socioeconomic status of the students, they did something no one else has done. They used the Community Survey of the U.S. Census, which is an annual survey conducted in between the 10-year census counts. So we measure the socioeconomic background of the children in the district by looking at their family's income, their parents' uh, education level, uh, their poverty status, their unemployment status, their um, single-parent household rate in a school district, as well as the teen birth rate in a district. So we put those all into a sort of a composite measure that gives us a pretty good idea of the the general socioeconomic conditions uh, in the families and in the community. They put school districts onto a common scale. All the way on the right is Kenilworth, Illinois, with a median family income of $225,000 a year. All the way on the left is Wellston, Missouri, with a median family income of $22,000 a year. That's less than one-tenth that of Kenilworth. By the way, we linked to Reardon's analysis in a very cool interactive scatterplot of the school districts published by the New York Times on www.edtrust.org slash districts. Reardon and his team arranged all school districts by the socioeconomic status of their students, but then they did something else that's never been done before. They looked to see how students' academic achievement was related to the socioeconomic characteristics of their districts. It turns out we test children a lot in the United States. Um, we administer something like 50 million standardized tests a year just to elementary and middle school students. And so I've been gathering the data, the, the test score results from all of those tests uh, over the last uh, five to seven years. And so I've built this large data set that 
that has the test score results for every single public elementary and middle school in the United States from 2009 uh, forward. And we're trying to use those data to sort of look at uh, in what kinds of places, what kinds of communities and school districts do children uh, have high levels of performance. So this was doing Coleman one better. Coleman only looked at individual schools. Reardon looked at districts. The thing that makes this work really tricky is that states use different assessments that weren't really designed to be compared to each other. And so we had to uh, do a lot of work to, to get the test scores on a, on a comparable scale. Now that we've done that, we can learn a lot from this because we can compare every school district in the country. So now that he's done that, what did he find? So I think the big finding that you can see, I think, very strikingly in that there's this very strong relationship between the socioeconomic conditions, uh, the socioeconomic backgrounds of the families whose children go to school in a given district, and the average performance of, of those children. So uh, children in districts where most children are poor have test scores that are roughly four grade levels behind those of children in school districts where most children come from affluent backgrounds. So that's a really big difference. Um, and it's a very strong correlation. So there aren't very many uh, poor school districts in the United States where the average student scores even at the level of the national average. And there aren't very many rich districts where the average student scores uh, that low, that is, most children in those school districts score well above the national average. So, so that uh, I think that that pattern is really quite striking. For example, in Kenilworth, with its median family income of two hundred twenty-five thousand dollars, students score two and a half grade levels above the national average. In Wellstone, Missouri, with its median family income of twenty-two thousand dollars, students on average achieve three point two grade levels below the national average. This is a very strong correlation, but as every beginning statistics student can say, as you know, correlation is not causation. We don't know just from looking at that pattern that it's due to the school systems per se or to other factors in those communities. I think of these test scores as sort of measures of the sum total of opportunities that are available to children who grow up in a given community. And that means they're not just the product of the public school system. They're the product of uh, the conditions in which kids grow up, in the resources that their families are able to provide them, in the quality of childcare and preschool programs that are available, in the, the neighborhood conditions. In other words, Reardon doesn't want his analysis to be where his work ends. So I don't want to just be the guy who shows you there's a big problem in the world and isn't sort of part of figuring out what to do about it. Um, and like I said, I don't think the data themselves tell us what to do, but I think we can use the data to learn a lot. We can look at, you know, where are the places where lots of low-income children live, but they're doing much better uh, than you might predict just on the basis of their family backgrounds. What's going on in those communities? Do they have great preschool programs? Do they have great elementary programs? And what is, if it's the school system, what is it about the school system that seems most effective? So I'm hoping we can use these data to learn something about how to create more opportunity at scale for, for lots of poor kids. 
Reardon is hoping that others will use his analysis to find school districts that don't fit the ordinary patterns that connect academic achievement and student demographics, and then figure out what they do to be extraordinary. And that's what we'll be doing in this podcast series. We'll take his analysis to find effective districts, or as we're calling them in this podcast, extraordinary districts, and then answer the question, what do they do? To find out the answers, we'll be talking with superintendents, principals, teachers, parents, and leading scholars. Now, it's important to say that we're delving into hazardous territory. The field of education is rife with people trumpeting pet projects and claiming great results with very little evidence. Advocates have proposed everything from computer technology to mindfulness as panaceas for improving academic achievement. But such claims are rarely backed up with real research or evidence. So we're going to tread very carefully and try not to get ahead of the evidence. But it's hard to see Sean Reardon's scatterplot of districts and look at the dots that are outside the general pattern and not wonder what some of those districts are like and what they are doing. The three districts that I think pop out the most are the first districts these podcasts will visit, and they are as different from each other as they can be. One is a suburban district that qualifies as extraordinary because it has closed the proficiency gap between its white and Asian students on the one hand and its African-American and Hispanic students on the other. That's a goal that has eluded many districts. Another is a small, high-poverty urban district where the elementary schools perform at the top of the country above many wealthier districts. And the third is a large urban school system that stands out for the way it takes students who arrive way behind and helps them improve. I'm going to guess that that district will come as a surprise to many people. We're going to explore the differences among these districts, but we're also going to see if they have anything in common that others can learn from. So be sure to tune in to our next podcast. In the meantime, go to www.edtrust.org slash extraordinary districts, where we have lots of resources to explore, including a link to Sean Reardon's interactive scatterplot. Spend a little time on that scatterplot and see what intrigues you. See if you can find your district and let us know what district you would like to know more about. Maybe we'll be able to investigate it in the future. Thanks for listening to the Education Trust podcast series, Extraordinary Districts, which was made possible with a grant from the Wallace Foundation. I'm Karen Chenoweth. See you next time.